This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Welcome to this Research in Practice podcast. My name is Hannah Scott. I'm a Research and Development Officer at Research in Practice, and I'm also a qualified social worker. I'm going to let Kerry introduce herself as well. Hi, I'm Kerry Chatterjee, and I'm an intermediary. I work for an organisation called Triangle. Thank you. So the aim of this podcast is to to really talk about the role of an intermediary and see if there's any transferable learning to towards social work as well, but help to really get an understanding of what the intermediary role is. I I know from my experience in social work and working particularly in child protection that there have been intermediaries who have worked with children that I've worked with, but that's always been done um, sort of behind closed doors and and for for the right reasons, obviously it's quite a a private role, Uh, but I think there's a lot of learning and uh, we have case law and legal summaries at Research in Practice and there's been a number of cases recently that have involved judgments with in the involvement of intermediaries. There was one in particular that was a, a really lovely judgment, actually, that highlighted the, the successful approach that was taken by an intermediary. We'll link this case and sort of any other ones that are relevant on our website uh, linked to this podcast. But it shows about the different approaches that have been taken, particularly with COVID and, and the virtual working and the virtual hearings as well. So... If we start then, Kerry, um, if you could just talk a little bit then about what is the role of an intermediary? Um, you know, what sort of um, settings and different people do you work with in your role and, and who's responsible for your involvement and, and the one that sort of gets you um, involved in the case then? An intermediary facilitates communication between the court and parties within the court. Um, and it's usually... Um, people who have learning disabilities or some mental health issues um, triangle work with young people um, up to the age of 30 although intermediaries in other organizations and independent intermediaries will work with people of all ages Um, we work in criminal and civil court Um, often with mothers in care proceedings, but quite recently we've had a lot of children in care proceedings as well that that we're working with. Um, And we can also be involved in suspect interviews, although that's quite rare. So it's quite a broad range of people that you work with then, so it can be both the children and the adults as well as the, the criminal and family proceedings. Who is it that will arrange your involvement and decide where it's appropriate if an intermediary is needed to support somebody? Um, That varies, obviously. In the case of um, a suspect interview, that would either be the police or um, a solicitor. Um, In criminal and family proceedings, it's usually the solicitor, I think, who would have the most dealings with the client, who would realise that actually they're not really understanding enough to be able to give instructions adequately and so they would usually instruct us but sometimes you know it can it can even get to court and maybe the judge will realize that something's not quite right and think that an intermediary should be involved. So in terms of sort of some of the reasons then you might be asked to support is that if there's a parent with um, either an impairment or a learning need or if it's very young children that might need that support in sort of communicating then? 
Yes, absolutely. Like I say, it's it's quite often um, people with learning disabilities, ADHD, autism, some mental health issues, um, or or simply because of their age. You know, we will work with children just because they're vulnerable due to their age. And I think you've mentioned about supporting in ABEs, so achieving best evidence interviews. Is that something that is a requirement for, for all young people um, when they're having those interviews? Or what, what is it that determines if, if somebody like yourself should be present for those interviews? There is a difference between um, a registered intermediary and a non-registered intermediary. A non-registered intermediary will soon become known as a court-appointed intermediary. Um, so the, the registered intermediaries work on the, the, the witness intermediary scheme, which is run by the CPS. And so they will um, receive a referral through their process and they will work with a child in criminal proceedings. And during those proceedings, they will probably be involved in an ABE. For a non-registered intermediary, we wouldn't normally be involved in ABE interviews, but as part of the work that we do at Triangle, we also do forensic interviewing. So the intermediaries that work for Triangle will probably have two or three different roles within the organisation. So we, we are trained as forensic interviewers. So under that heading, you know, we would be involved in um, ABE interviews, which we would carry out rather than police in a, in a criminal investigation. We would actually do the interview. Okay, so would that be you leading the interview then and asking those questions? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As I say, registered um, registered intermediaries could be involved in ABE interviews as an intermediary with the police leading the interview. What sort of methods do you use then to support people in, in their communication and to help them fully understand the proceedings that they're involved with? We always start off by doing um, an intermediary assessment initially. So that involves finding out um, what their communication skills are. So how they answer questions, um, the kind of language that they can understand, question, different question types, length of questions, um, auditory working memory, all of those kind of things, what they know about the court process. Um, and then from that, we would write a report which would go to the solicitor and then to the court. Um, But things that we can do in court, we can sort of um, arrange breaks. We can provide um, calming aids for people to handle, sort of fiddle toys, things like that. Um, And when people are being questioned, we have the right to intervene. Um, We would do a ground rules hearing along with the judge and the advocates. In theory, that's how it should work, although it doesn't always work like that. But in theory, we would do a ground jewels hearing and our recommendations would then be approved by the judge, which would then become the ground jewels for the trial or the hearing. So then if those ground jewels are not adhered to, we can intervene and request that questions are rephrased or that certain language isn't used, um, that kind of thing. So what are the limits of your role then about, uh, because it's not an advocacy role about speaking on people's behalf, is it? It's about supporting them in, in, in communicating the, the best that they can. Are there any times where you can, you can speak on behalf of people or is it more about just uh, supporting them to, to contribute the best that they can? Certainly all the cases that I've worked with, um, people haven't had learning disabilities. I know in, in 
earlier times some of my colleagues have worked with people who've used like communication boards and that kind of thing um where they, they may have to sort of you know decipher what's being said and then relay that to the court I've, I've never been in that position personally but that is something that an intermediary can do but certainly we, we don't answer questions for people if somebody's speaking quietly we can repeat what they've said um, if somebody's um, gesturing that the court may not see, we can alert the court to that. Um, but we, we certainly don't answer questions on behalf of people. And how have you found that COVID and the, the pandemic has impacted on your role and your ability to support people? Because it's been obviously something that's been discussed a lot anyway, just I suppose in all settings, but particularly in social work, it's been so important to make sure that decisions are still made for children in a timely manner. But then obviously the, the, the flip side of that is having hearings that haven't felt as comfortable for people and um, having to have sort of virtual hearings where people might not have full internet access or some people even doing them on the phone and so then if you've got any sort of additional learning needs on top of that that's a, a really big challenge so have you found sort of a difference in the sort of work you've been asked to do or the approaches that you've had to take the work has been the same although previously we would always do face-to-face assessments um obviously we've had to adapt our practice so we've we've done um assessments on video platforms various different video platforms um, which it does have its challenges, but most things can be adapted so that so that they can be done. The assessment tasks can still be done in a, a similar way. Um, and you, you just find ways of, of working and dealing with what you're handed. Hearings have been more challenging because if if you have a young person who's joining by phone, then you can't really be in contact with them whilst the hearing's on. If you have somebody who's joining on a video platform, then you could converse by phone or by text, you know, whilst that hearing's going on. Quite often, the, the people that we do support might have difficulty using these various platforms and find it difficult to join and participate fully. Have you found there's been any benefits? Because I think the case that I'd mentioned at, at the beginning of our conversation that was a, a case uh, that had been made public in the judgment because of the, the praise it had given the intermediary, um, what they were actually able to do, so this was in a face-to-face hearing, um, instead of the mother giving oral evidence, she gave written answers by sitting in the witness box and typing in the answers, uh, which was something that she felt more able to do and had the support to be able to, to read those questions and, and before moving on to the next one rather than having to sort of giving give that verbal evidence on the stand as well um so i don't know if there's been there may may be um you know virtual hearings that have had that benefit for people i suppose and and there have been some benefits to virtual working and and those those hearings um so are you aware of any sort of uh, sort of really big changes like that that anyone's had to make or have most cases sort of had still happened face to face where that's really felt to be needed Personally, I, I think that any case that involves an intermediary, the intermediary needs to at least be with the young person somewhere, even if they're not in court, um, to be able to support them adequately. Case management hearings, I suppose it's it's okay to do those um, virtually and then just explain what's happened to the young person. That usually works quite well. But certainly for some people, yeah, it has been beneficial not having to be in courtroom um, it, you know, you might be working from a solicitor's office or a local authority building, just you and that young person. And for some people, yeah, that, that is really beneficial. Um, 
but I mean that again now that is one of the things that we can recommend if we think that a young person would cope better working that way we can recommend that that's great so again it's about picking out those positives of this different way that we've had to work isn't it absolutely so are there any times that you come into direct contact with social workers because as I mentioned you know it's a role that I never really got to see directly when I was in practice myself so are there many times that you would come into direct contact with a social worker Um, and is there any advice that you would maybe give social workers from your role in how they communicate with children or any sort of good learning examples that you've come across? Um, we would only really see social workers in the during the court process. So now it's usually virtually because even if we're in court, social workers are usually still um, on, on video. Although an intermediary is there to facilitate communication and our duty is to the court, I think there is still some mistrust perhaps between the parties and, and people think that you are on the side of the person that you're working with rather than being there to, to help the court. I think in my experience, it's not always apparent that social workers have learned about the young person's needs and, and sort of used that in their working practice. And I think that's that's vital to be able to get the best and to be able to support people properly. And in terms of working with young people and supporting sort of particularly quite young children uh, in in contributing or talking about maybe some concerns or things that have happened what sort of approaches do you take to support children that maybe social workers um, may be able to learn from um we have a number of tools actually that that triangle use and we have we have resources that um are available on our website um but we, we do have some things that Triangle have developed to help us in our practice. We, we have um, some magnetic figures. Um, so they're, they're, a, they're a 2D figure with magnetic clothing. So if it's something that's involving clothing and positions and that kind of thing, those, those things can be taken off. So outerwear, underwear can all be taken off that model if, if that's something that will help the young person to describe what's happened to them. And obviously we would only use that in an interview situation. Um, but we quite often use drawings in our assessments. Um, you know, if, if, it's, if it is a young, young person, they might benefit from being able to draw or as you say, to write things down. And I worked with a, um, a child who didn't want to say something particularly to the judge. And so she wrote it down for me to say. Yeah, all of, all of those things are, are helpful. And do you just provide support um, within sort of the legal arena or are you ever brought in for to support in sort of pre-proceedings work or in, in assessments sort of before the cases have got to maybe the family courts? Sometimes, yeah. I've just done one recently actually where um, the judge had allowed um, a couple in family proceedings to have a pre-assessment with a supported accommodation and so I was asked to sit in on that we quite often get asked to sit in on conferences to enable solicitors to take adequate instructions and just to make sure that that people have understood what's being asked of them one that I've done that has been successful I was involved right from the very start practically after he was arrested before they started any 
uh, interview process. They were aware that he had some some difficulties and got me involved then. And I was involved in the whole process. We, we interviewed. I was involved with the charging. We went to prison to, to charge him on various things. So that was a really good experience and, and really, really hands-on policing. It was brilliant. So if social workers um, or any practitioners feel that there's a need for an intermediary that's maybe not been identified to support either an adult or a child within maybe proceedings or cases that they're working, would it would it be a matter of making sure it's raised with the advocates and, and highlighted to the judge so that that can be opened up for into a discussion? Yeah, exactly. They would just yeah. need to raise it with the solicitor and then that would be raised with the judge. And, and does the judge have to consent then for your involvement within any proceedings? Yes. Yeah, the judge has to agree. And um, I mean, to be honest, in family proceedings, I've never known a judge to refuse an intermediary if it's thought that a party needs one. It's, it's quite different in the um, criminal system. Um, they quite often don't agree to have an intermediary and sometimes they'll agree for evidence only rather than the whole trial, um, which is it's quite difficult to support somebody that way um, and obviously not, not meeting their needs, as far as I'm concerned, not meeting their needs. Obviously, it's the judge's decision and we just have to abide by what they decide. Yeah, and I think what's also um, really important for social workers to do is, and, and particularly, this has always been in the the sweat template, which is the the, the social work evidence that the social workers have to complete. But there is a section there which is still included in the a recently revised version of the sweat documents that will ask about how parents have been supported to make sure that they can fully participate in, and understand proceedings and I think that's something that's you know obviously really important to consider but this this is a really key area of obviously where where an intermediary can be used can't it and and that can be something I suppose that if if there are concerns can be can be raised quite early in, in proceedings to make sure that those that each individual has got the full chance to participate throughout each hearing. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sooner we're involved, the better for everybody, really. And just, you know, there's simple questions you can ask people to identify vulnerability, such as, you know, if, if they've had any extra help in school, if they need help to, to fill in forms. You know, it's it's not too intrusive a process. It's quite simple to find out if people might need some extra help. So thank you very much. That's been a really helpful conversation and we're hoping that it will just give um, give practitioners just a bit of an insight really about uh, about what happens in, in your role, because it is such an important role and um, that it's it's really helpful. And I think there's a lot of learning there as well on, on communication. So thank you for that. So thank you for listening to this podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.